1 Samuel and then Daniel chapter 10. And we've been we've been talking about prayer for some time on Sunday nights, and um, and I, I'm I'm going to read this section of scripture, then we're going to uh, get into it. But uh, let's pray together, Heavenly Father. We want to come before you because we know that your word tells us we have not because we ask not, and we believe that we stand stand in prayer, uh, helping to accomplish your will on earth as intercessors. And as we come before you this evening, we lift up those people that are near and dear to us, and we want to lift up the Derek family, their son and daughter-in-law, and the loss that they have experienced. Um, death is no respect to persons. It hits everyone. It hits all ages. And in fact, there are some people here tonight who have lost little babies, um, know what that's all about. So we ask that you would comfort and that you would help and that you would enable. And Lord, um, we continue to pray for Nancy that you would give her full recovery. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, First Samuel chapter 1, and let's go through this section of Scripture, and we're going to be skipping a little bit here. But there's a certain man from the Rethem, uh, Zarephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanai, son of Jerem, the son of Elu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and the son of uh, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other was Pinah. Pinah had children, but notice Hannah didn't have any children. Verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Pinya and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept uh, um, provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the Lord house of the Lord, her rival, talking about the other wife, provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In the bitterness of her soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord made a vow, uh, and made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if only you look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. This is the prophet. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a man who, woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great, notice, great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked him. And notice verse 19. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. 
who was her son? She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Keep your finger here. And I said, as I said earlier, if you want to put a marker over in Daniel chapter 10, that'd be great as well. Lord, I'm asking that you'd help me to share this message and make it applicable uh, this cold Sunday evening in December. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when the gospel is planted into hearts of people, really good receptive soil, we read in Scripture that takes fruit. It takes fruition. But as you know that Jesus talked about different types of soil, and he said there are some hearts that really are not receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may have shallow roots and go in, and it's not really very, very good soil, you might want to say. So there is something to be said about soil preparation as far as planting a seed and seeing that seed come to fruition. And the scripture indicates that we have a part to play. We're not the we're not God. We don't create the seed. We don't save people, but we have a part to play in the soil preparation of people's hearts and in their lives. Unsaved people. Um some people might say, well, you know, I, I just don't understand what you're talking about. I don't understand that. I don't believe it or whatever it may be. You don't know or, or somebody might say, well, you don't know how long I've been praying for my spouse. You don't know how long I've been praying for my kids. You don't know how long I've been, I've been praying for my next door neighbor. And we all have individuals like that that we've been praying for a long time about their salvation. And perhaps we have kids that are a little bit backslidden or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah, I, I know people that get saved but every once in a while. But uh, come on, Pastor Ron. Uh, maybe a person here, maybe a person there, but you know the scripture says the fields are white under harvest, white under harvest. That means that there's a tremendous harvest in any and every generation that Jesus talked about, and Jesus specifically in his generation was talking about uh, Samaritans who he had just encountered in that particular context when he said the fields are white under harvest, and we're going to be talking about it in just a moment. He pointed to these people when he was speaking to his disciples, these Samaritans, and he said, the fields are white under harvest. And then he told his men, he said, open your eyes and look at the fields. Uh, another translation, they are ripe for harvest. Now, I imagine that his men said, what are you talking about? Because we know, if you study scripture, that the Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jewish people. Samaria was inhabited by those individuals who did not go to the Babylonian captivity. They were people who stuck around and they were not taken. And they mixed with the Philistine people. They were considered half-breeds. And Jesus said the fields are white in the harvest and he was speaking and he was pointing his finger at everybody, but especially those group of people who were around Jesus at that time and his disciples, the Samaritan people. To an Orthodox Jewish person, the Samaritan, again, was a half-breed, an outcast. They could never, ever enter into heaven. But Jesus didn't see it this way because he saw the potential. He saw the possibilities of everybody in all colors, all shapes, all sizes, all ages, whatever it may be. Um, Bruce Larson, who is a pastor and writer a number of years ago, and he passed away uh, he pastored a, a large uh, Presbyterian church up in Seattle, Washington, and he was an evangelical Christian. He wasn't one of those liberal Presbyterians. Um, he, he, um, he writes of a lady who died in a nursing home in, in Scotland, 
a few years ago. And she left a, a nothing of value except a poem that the nurses found as they were going through her things. Nothing of value except a poem that she had after she died. And here is the poem in part, and I want you to listen to it. What do you see, nurses? What do you see? What are you thinking when you're looking at me? A crabby old woman, not very wise, uncertain of habit with faraway eyes. I'm a small child of ten with a mother and a father, brothers and sisters who love one another. A bride in her twenties, my heart gives a leap, remembering the vow that I promised to keep. A woman of thirty, my young now grow fast, bound to each other with ties that should last. At forty, my sons have grown and have gone, but my man is still beside me to see that I don't mourn. At fifty, once more, babies play around my knees. Again, we know children, my husband and me. I'm an old woman now, and nature is cruel. Tis her jest to make old age look like a fool. The body is crumbled, grace and vigor is departed. There is now a stone where I once had a heart. But inside this old body, inside this old carcass, a young girl still dwells. And now and again, my battered heart swells. I remember the joys, and I remember the pains. And I'm loving and living life over again. I think of all the years, all too few, gone too fast, and accept the stark fact that nothing can last. So open your eyes, nurses, open your eyes. Not a crabbed old woman, look closer, see me. End of quote. When I read that poem, I thought, that's exactly what Jesus, how Jesus looks at people. We read throughout Scripture, he always looked at these people who had leprosy, these individuals that were half-breeds, Samaritans, these people who no one else would touch. And yet in his earthly ministry, he ministered to all of these individuals and many, many more. Cynical people, bitter people, we have them today in our world. We have people who we think in, there's no way in the world those people could ever, ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you have those individuals, those people that you work with, those people that are next door neighbors, those people that are unsafe, and we think to ourselves, there's no way in the world that those people could ever, ever come to faith in Christ. And yet those are the very people that we read in Scripture that Jesus did come for. He didn't come for the, the well and the put together. He came for the sick and the lost. Now, Jesus didn't conclude at this particular passage of Scripture. We saw these individuals and said the field are white in the harvest. For he knew that in order to take, uh, in order to help these individuals and in order to increase the faith of his followers, especially his disciples, in order to change lives, in order to see relationships healed, in order to see hearts changed, that there was one thing that he would have to emphasize and he would have to teach his disciples, and that was how to pray, how to pray. We've been talking about intercessory prayer for a number of weeks. And he said in his only specific request to his men in that context, pray, pray, what does he say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. Workers. In other words, pray that God would call, first of all, not only call individuals to go to the mission field, not only call individuals to go across the street, not only call individuals to witness the people at work, but first of all, 
the context tells us, in other words, that God would call and train people who would pray to help prepare the soil. In other words, there are individuals and there are places that we were to witness and there were to work at, but in order to have a, a harvest, in order to see... Um, in order to see the fruition to come, come in order to see people saved, there must be soil preparation. Does that make sense? We all know that, that, that gardeners they go out and and they 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 prepare the soil. They use their rototiller and they add fertilizer and 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 they add water and they plant the seeds and they do all this stuff. We cannot produce the seed, but we can help prepare the soil to, so that people will be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we are called to do as uh, intercessors. So Jesus, I believe in the context here, was talking about helping not only to send people and not only giving money and, and, and whatever, but, to, but he was talking about prayer, intercessory prayer, preparing the soil. Well, what is intercessory prayer? This is what somebody has written, and this is, I'm quoting, it is prayer that pushes Right through all the difficulties, it is prayer that pushes all through the obstacles, drives back all the opposing forces of Satan, and secures the will of God. Its purpose is to accomplish the will of God on earth. Prevailing prayer is prayer that helps to accomplish God's will on earth. Because, at times, God's will is not automatically done on earth as it is in heaven. And this blows our mind, and we can understand this, but the Bible says that God has put Satan, old snaggletooth, temporarily in charge, the small God of this world, temporarily in charge. He's allowed him to have charge, and often Satan in his courts interferes with God's will being accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't understand this, and we can't comprehend it, but it's a fact, and it's true. Now this is what somebody has written, and I'm quoting there's no power like that of prevailing prayer of Abraham. Abraham pleading for Sodom. Didn't Abraham plead for Sodom? Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night. Moses standing in the breach. David heartbroken with remorse and grief. Jesus in sweat and blood. Add to this list from the records of the church your, your personal observations and experiences. And always there is a passion. There is always intercessory prayer. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. Samuel Chadwick. In short, prevailing prayer is intercessory prayer where a person stands in the gap and they intercede. Remember we talked about the triangle of prayer. Whereas intercessors, God's people, we go to God on behalf of somebody else. This triangle of prayer. Uh, where a person stands in the gap, persevering until um, uh, until we see the accomplishment of God's will on earth. And perhaps the greatest Old Testament illustration of this is found in the story of Hannah, that scripture that I got through reading in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let me set the scene. Let me set the scene of this, this story. A man by the name of Elkanah had two wives, Pinya and Hannah. Pinya had children. Hannah didn't have any kids. Hannah was barren. And barrenness, especially in the Old Testament and New Testament days, uh, made a woman feel very, very inadequate. They got most of their self-esteem from the fact that they could have children. And on top of this, besides feeling like a nobody, 
she happened to live with another wife of her husband. They had a number of wives in those days. And um, Pena made fun of Hannah day in and day out. Did you hear what the passage of Scripture said? She harangued this woman. She made fun of her. She put her down every single time that she could do this. She did this. Uh, Pena just made Hannah's life absolutely miserable. Absolutely miserable. All the time. Verbally attacking. Putting her down. And note, this did not go on for a short while. Verse 7 of our text, look at verse 7 with me, says that this went on year after year after year after year. We're talking about the, probably the total of 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Year after year after year, this went on. Because we know that Hannah, excuse me, that Pena had 10 children. She was so fertile that every time she put her foot in the water, she got pregnant. And every time she got pregnant, she would thumb her nose at, at uh, Pena would thumb her nose at Hannah and say terrible and awful things to her. This was a constant. This was, this was going on. Now, you, this is human nature. And you can imagine this. This is why God's perfect will is one man, one woman, not one man, two women, three women, four women, because it is unnatural. And you're always creating conflict. God allowed it, but it wasn't God's perfect will. Well, it finally got to the point where she didn't know what to do, and she begins to weep. And in this great, great grief, and in this great, great anguish, you can't just imagine what she was feeling. I mean, you know, those people that are barren, they will tell you uh, it is the worst thing. They want to have a child, and they go through these fertility classes, and they do all this stuff, and sometimes they just can't have a child, and so they, they adopt. But you can just imagine her crying, Oh God, what am I going to do? I can't handle this anymore. I'm barren. I, 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 I want to have a child. I want to have this baby. And my sister, the sister wife is constantly putting me down. I don't know what to do. And this leads me to my first point. Prevailing prayer, prevailing prayer is often preceded by feelings of desperation. This is what we read in scripture. Desperation. It wasn't until the children of Israel got desperate that God heard their prayers. We read in Scripture. Hey, folks, good to see you. We, we read in Scripture that they got desperate. And then all of a sudden, God spoke to Moses. And he said, go free my people. We read in the New Testament that this lady who had this particular illness uh, she cried out and cried out year after year after year, and finally she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed. So we're talking about desperate praying. We're talking about uh, places that we don't want to be. And here is Pena uh, and Hannah, and Hannah is uh, beside herself. Hannah is barren. She doesn't have a baby. Pena, the other wife, has not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, but she has eight children. She has eight babies. She has eight people of all different ages, and prevailing prayer often is preceded by feelings of desperation. Um, 
you know, and we're talking specifically about those people that we are um, praying for as far as salvation, praying that God would touch their heart. We're talking about people specifically that are backslidden and praying for finances and physical conditions and everything else, uh, brothers and sisters and, and extended family and, and uh, uh, people that are next door to us and some people that are often on drugs or alcohol. Uh, young adults that are caught up in this hedonistic uh, lifestyle, and and it seems like we've tried everything. You know, we've we talk to them, we witness to them, and, and but nothing seemingly works. Or perhaps you have a problem. It's an emotional problem, or or a physical problem, or maybe a habit, and and something that you've been wrestling with, and you've tried everything, but in the end you feel like uh, like a. Uh, like you're just clinging to a rock in the middle of a white river water. Just this holding on, this, 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 this holding on in the middle of this raging river that's sweeping and down around you, caught in the clutches, caught in the backwater, and, and, and there's nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. Now, I, I don't want to minimize all the things that I've just described right there. But in First Samuel here, this lady was going through it. She was barren. She wanted to have a baby. And Pinya, her, the other wife, was constantly putting her down, making fun of her, um, would not leave her alone. And, um, and what else could she do? What else could she do besides go to the Lord? I want you to listen to uh, what Isaac Watts wrote. When mountain walls confront thy way, why set and weep? Arise and say, be thou removed, and they shall be, by the power of God, cast in the sea. All power on earth, all power in heaven, to Christ the Son of God is given. And from the throne he will endure and hindrance Hindrances shall flee from you. Or all the power of fiend, fiend and man, say to the Lord, I surely can take from him power on earth to tread on serpent's sting on dragon's head. Whatever thou, art, whatever thou art, O mountain high, where thou art in earth or sky, when thou art, truth is the same. Be thou removed in Jesus' name. Be thou removed. Faith bids thee start. For yonder sea arise and depart. I may, I can, I must. I will the purpose of my God fulfill. Those kind of prayers that we find ourselves praying are often prayed in desperation. Because we find ourselves in situations and circumstances and family problems and, and health-related problems and financial problems, we find ourselves often in those places and in those positions. And there is something that God wants us to do and it is difficult at times you say pastor ron isn't it easy it isn't easy to prevail in prayer it isn't easy because prevailing prayer is often preceded by pain i don't know why i just noticed that it wasn't until the children of israel got so desperate that they begin to cry out to god that god heard their prayers and spoke to moses the second point I want to make is about this. Notice, prevailing prayer often produces pain and, and, and acts of sacrifice. 
acts of sacrifice. Like a mother in labor, Hannah's pain seemingly intensified. Uh, look, at, look at verse 8 of our text that, that I got through reading. We read that Hannah wept. We read in verse 8 of 1 Samuel chapter, um, the first chapter, we read that Hannah wept, so much so that her Elkanah, her husband, said, Why are you weeping? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? In verse 10, we read that she wept. Notice it says she wept. Uh, one translation says she wept in bitterness, NIV. Another translation says she wept sorely. In verse 12, she she continues. In verse 12, we read to, to agonize in, in prayer. And in verse 15, we read that she finally pours out her soul. In other words, she got to the place where she really didn't have any more tears. We've all been there, right? We don't have any more tears. And you just, you just say, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of consecration. It's a prayer where you just lift yourself up and say, I can't do anything else about the situation. My kids, my family, my problems, that person that's unsaved, I can't do anything about that. We call that consecration. We call that committing herself completely to God and her problem and her situation. And that's what we read. You know, a, you know the word crescendo, they use it in these musicals. It comes to a crescendo. It comes to a point. It comes to where she just says no more. I don't have any more. Uh, look specifically at, at what she uh, what happens here in verse 15. Um, not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. The prophet thought she was drunk. She was so uh, so um, in turmoil. But I was notice I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I was giving everything to God. I was consecrating that to Him. I am a woman who is deeply troubled, and I poured out my soul to the Lord. And I want you to notice it says that she prayed and she fasted from not only food, but she also fasted from water. We call this a complete fast. Um, and, you know, we can live 30, 40 days without food and just a few days without water. But she went without food and she went without water. Now, this, this area of fasting and prayer is very, very mysterious. And, and I don't know how how it all works. How abstaining from food helps us in our daily prayer life and helps us when we're interceding in prayer for something that's beyond what we can think or imagine. I, I can't explain it like the ABCs. All I know is that when we read in Scripture that whenever people got desperate, they often prayed and they fasted with their praying. Old Testament people fasted. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus himself fasted. Again, it's, it's mysterious, but from my limited experiences, I can tell you that when you do fast, it adds a, a dimension that perhaps 
that you don't understand to your and spiritual power to your prayer life when you do fast. And I hope to speak more about this subject in the near future. But to illustrate what I'm talking about this evening, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And I, I find this... Um, I find this absolutely fascinating in Daniel chapter 10. This is illustrating what we're talking about here. And we started off by saying that God's will, unfortunately, is not automatically done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you hear what I said? God's will is not automatically done on earth as it is in heaven because he has, un- he has given Satan charge, temporary charge, the small God of this world. And this is to illustrate that particular point and, and what I was talking about and the importance of intercessory prayer and, the, and persevering in prayer, prevailing prayer. In verse 2 of Daniel chapter 10, we read that Daniel prayed and fasted for three weeks. Daniel chapter 10, it says that he prayed and he fasted for three weeks. And finally, an angel of the Lord appeared and said to him in verses 12 and 13. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day, notice, the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before God, your words were heard. In verse 2, we read that he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed, and and for three weeks. And in verse 12, we read the very first day that the Lord heard him heard him, then why didn't God send an angel right away? Verse 13, But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, three weeks. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, is he talking about Michael the archangel, she's talking about an angel of God came to help me because I was detained there with the, there with the king of Persia. And the only thing that biblical scholars can figure out here is that for 21 days, this angel of the Lord was detained, was prevented from coming to Daniel because of some sort of satanic fallen angel. Isn't that interesting? He prayed, he fasted, and for 21 days, this angelic being of God was held up because of Satan's uh, fallen angel that prevented this messenger from coming to him. I think this very well illustrates in Scripture that we are involved in spiritual warfare. We've talked about Ephesians chapter 6. We've talked about how we have the enemy of our soul. And in both the Old Testament and New Testament, it talks about Satan. In Ephesians chapter 6, it specifically says that we are involved in spiritual warfare. We are involved because of the enemy of our soul is very well organized. He's cunning. And he's in charge of a vast army of helpers. And um, this is what... Uh, we read in Scripture. Now, Daniel persisted for 21 days. Day after day, he persisted. Night and day, fervently praying. And finally, 
the angel came. God's will, unfortunately, is not automatically done on earth as it is in heaven. As mysterious as that may sound, we are given an opportunity as intercessors to pray and to prevail in prayer and to fast to help God's will to be done on earth. Now, I want you to listen to this quote by F.J. Hegel. And this is what he has written, and I'm quoting. It has often been said that prayer is the greatest force in the universe. This is no exaggeration. It must bear constant repetition in this atomic age when forces are being released that stagger the thought and imagination of man. It is well to remember that prayer transcends all other forces. God's will as intercessors helping to be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. Now this leads me to point number three that I want to make this evening. Notice in your outline, notice on the overhead up here, prevailing prayer prepares a way for God's will to be done. Prevailing prayer prevail, pre prepares a way for God's will to be done. I want you to turn with me back to 1 Samuel. Turn with me back to 1 Samuel. And I want us to look at verses 12 through 14 one more time again. We've talked about these two ladies, how one is barren and of the womb and how the other wife has all kinds of children, ten children, and how the one that uh, has all these kids, is she's constantly making fun of Hannah and how Hannah is interceding in prayer, prevailing in prayer, asking God over and over again, year after year after year, for her to become pregnant, to have a child. And I want you to look at verses uh, 12 through 14 again. As she kept on praying, kept on, that's prevailing prayer to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. That's the prophet. And Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And so Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. And she said, Not so, my Lord. Hannah replied, I am a man... Well, excuse me, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. And notice... Eli answered... Verse 17, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And verse 20, so in the course of time, Hannah conceived. She had, she got pregnant and she had a son and he was Samuel, the great prophet, who himself wrestled in intercessory prayer and saw so many answers to prayer. Now, we have two boys, and I remember my wife going through the labor pains of having those children, and it was terrible, and it was awful, and 
especially the first child, it seems like my wife was in 16, 17 hours of labor, hard, hard labor. We were in Missoula, Montana, and Kathy's water broke Saturday night. And so Sunday morning, I was with my wife, and so we called our church people, and they begin to call throughout the day as she was in labor. She hasn't had her baby yet? No. She hasn't had her baby yet? No. And um, I, we did the Lamaze training and all that stuff, but that didn't help that much. She was in intense pain. But once she had that baby and they laid my oldest son on her stomach, she smiled a big smile. And uh, the labor pain became worth it. Um, and this is often the way it is with this idea and this understanding of prevailing prayer. We believe God. We petition Him. We perhaps pray and we fast. And there are situations that we find ourselves that are way beyond our control. And the Lord has a way of coming into those situations and comforting us and helping us and enabling us. And we see soil preparation. We see people that are convicted of their sins. And we see individuals, their hearts begin to change and they become more receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, there's help and there's hope that's given those people in their lives. Um, would, would you bow your heads with me and let, let's pray together.